Please turn in the Bibles that you have now to the book of Micah. And we're going to start today in chapter 3. <coughs> Micah is in the Old Testament, uh, near the end of the Old Testament. We are continuing to work our way through this section at the end of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. Very good. Uh, There are 12 of these prophets. What's that? You know, I didn't look up the page number. If someone has a Bible from this room, could someone tell me what page Micah chapter 3 is on? 661. 661. Did... Have any of you read... The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay. The movie? The movie's very close to the book. Um, very early on in the book, as Lucy enters into the wardrobe, she one of the very first things that she notices about... Narnia, this land that she into which she enters. Uh, what's what's one of the first things that she notices about it? Okay, there's a lamppost. Uh, what else? Winter. Yeah, the weather. All right, it's snowing. Um, it's cold. She has to take a jacket from the wardrobe itself because it's cold. Now, not only is it is it winter. Um, she, she comes across this fawn and, and she, uh, she finds out from this fawn, Mr. Tumnus, that the whole land of Narnia is under the domain of a white witch. And, um, he mentions to her in their conversation that he is under the service of the white witch and Lucy, of course, doesn't know who that is. She says, well, who's the white witch? And here's his answer. He says, uh, why? It is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. Okay? That's, that's the way uh, that Mr. Tumnus describes... Narnia, always winter and never Christmas. Now, the reason, well, let's let's kind of let's kind of ask and discuss it. Why would you suppose that that would be significant? What is what normally is um, when you think of winter, snow and cold and darkness and 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 you know normally we might think of. Well, there's good things that go, you know, unless you just really like cold weather, which I don't know why anybody would. But but normally you'd think maybe of winter and you'd think, okay, well, at least there's Christmas. Well, according to Tumnus, not only is it always winter, it's never Christmas. There's no joy, there's nothing really to look forward to even in this 
in this winter. We're going to see here at the beginning of Micah 3 how the way that the land is described um, is you could almost associate it with a winter-type setting. Everything just seems dark. Everything seems cold. Everybody just just seems um, angry and antagonistic. And it's, it's almost like it just, when I was reading it, it reminded me of that description. It's almost like it's always winter and never Christmas. There's nothing to look forward to. Everybody is dreary, and it's almost like there's no hope at all, and there's no end in sight. There's no relief that's coming, okay? Now, last week, if you were in the main service, we actually worked through Micah 1 and 2 in the main service, and we saw... Um, that it is the Lord, okay, it is the God of the Bible who is supreme over everything. You remember, uh, if you were in there, do you remember what Micah's name means, what we said Micah's name means? It actually asks a question. Very good. Micah's name would mean, it would be translated, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And, And we saw from Micah that the answer really is, no one is like the Lord. There is none like Him. Uh, and yet, God's people, the nation of Israel, had fallen in, into such a dire condition that even having the Lord on their side uh, was not making a difference for them. So, the fir- there's really two sections, two main sections to what we're going to look at today. And you've got your notes there that you can follow along with. The first section would be a way to describe or or a way that would make it seem as though it's always winter and never Christmas. And that would be this, uh, this heading that we're calling warnings for hypocritical leaders. These warnings are given because of the winter-like state in Israel. All right, so let's read some of this together. There are three sections. Again, you can kind of see those three addresses or three speeches that make up chapter 3. So in your notes, you've got the first one that's to heads and rulers. And then um, go ahead and write that in, in there, an address to heads and rulers, people in charge, these, this could even include kings, or at least people who work with, with kings. And then you'll notice the third address is also to what group of people? Heads and rulers. The same group is being addressed twice. Now let's read to see how they are addressed. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Micah writes, And I said, Here... You heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So you see there that that's who he's talking to. Now here's his question. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And then the rest of of verses 2 and 3, there is this imagery that describe these people in Israel, these heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who hate good and love evil. And, and it's described in ways like tearing skin 
and flesh from off of people's bones and then eating their flesh and skin and breaking their bones. This is, this is probably imagery to articulate the way that it was as though Israel's rulers were just destroying their people with their injustice. They should have known justice. That's why he asks in verse 1, Is it not for you to know justice? Shouldn't you know, shouldn't you know what's right? That would be a, a way to describe justice. Shouldn't you know what is right? In fact, isn't it, don't you think, don't you suppose that God puts human leaders in place to help regulate right and wrong? You know, to, to uh, punish the evil and to reward the good, right? Like that's what, that's what leaders in most positions do, whether it's in government or in business or even in churches, nations. And yet, how is it described? They do, because they don't know justice, what do they hate? According to verse 2. They hate what is good, and they love what is evil. So they, they have justice completely flipped around. So this would be not justice, but injustice. It's as though they're rewarding what is wrong and punishing what is good. And because of this, look at verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord... But he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. It seems like every other time in the prophets that we've read so far, the Lord is obviously, the Lord wants his people to seek him, right? He's, he, he's reminding them, he's telling them, he's urging them, uh, return to me. And when he offers them to return to him, what does, he, what does he say will happen? If you seek me, you will find me. Exactly. You, return to me and I will forgive you. Okay. Except now he's saying there's going to come a time where even you will seek me, but you will not find me. I will hide my, my face from you because your deeds are evil. So even God's extension of His grace, His offer of His mercy, is for a limited time, isn't it? Like, there's going to come a time where the Lord will no longer be accessible. It will be too late for people to return to the Lord. So that's the warning that Micah gives to these heads and rulers. Here's the second address, and this one uh, according to verse 5, look at it with me. The Lord, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. So this one is an address to the prophets, or at least about the prophets. And here's what he says about the prophets in verse 5. He says that they lead my people astray. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their Mouths. All right, let's let's try to understand a little bit about what's going on. Uh, we've mentioned over and over again that the job of a prophet is simply to speak what God tells him to speak. Right? Micah was a prophet. Micah here is doing his best to relay the message of the Lord to the people. But some of the prophets instead had a tendency not they were less concerned with what the Lord had to say, and they're much more concerned with what they want. So, for example, 
when they have enough to eat, what's their message? Everything is great, peaceful, good. But if, they're, if, if they don't, if they have nothing in their mouths, then what do they do? They declare war, the opposite of peace, right? In other words, they're, they're making enemies. They're, they're advertising violence. They're looking out for themselves. And again, the judgment here for this kind of action is a lot like it was in verse 4. So verse, um, verse 6 says, It will be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. That would be another way of saying, um, the, the Lord would be saying to them something like, If you're not going to give the message that I give to you to the people, then I'm just going to stop giving you messages. I'm going to stop revealing myself to you. The sun will go, this is still verse 6, the sun goes down on them, the day will be black over them, seers will be disgraced, diviners put to shame. And then here's the end of verse 7, they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Again, he will just, he will stop, he will cease to give them his revelation. He'll, he'll stop showing himself to them, he will hide his face from them, he will not give them an answer. Now, Micah wants to make sure that the people know that he's not like these prophets. So here's what Micah says about himself in verse 8. He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So here's what's interesting about that phrase. Micah says, I have the Spirit of the Lord... I'm filled with, he says, justice and might. Well, what was the one thing that the rulers in Israel didn't have? What did they not practice? Justice. justice. So Micah says, here is true justice, and he says, it is declaring to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Is it popular for people to have their sins pointed out? Like, is that something everybody wants? Like, if I, like, like if I single Joel out, and I, and I said, Joel, I'm going to tell everybody this way that I know you sinned because you badmouth Tennessee football. Right? Or Carson brought a milkshake from McDonald's and he didn't share it with anybody. So I'm, so <laughs> in doing that, like nobody wants to have their, their sins pointed out. But Micah says that justice is calling sin what it is. Now, obviously, I'm teasing those guys. That's not really that serious of a sin. But the point is, if we are honest with ourselves and with each other, we're going to need to call sin what it is. If something really is evil, we need to call it evil, right? And only call good what is good. And Micah says that's his role. Now, the third address here to the head, heads and rulers... Uh, is very similar. He describes the, the injustice. Look at verse 9. He says, um, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Make crooked all that is straight. That's another way to describe you're taking what is good and you're making it evil, or evil and what is good. And look at how he describes what's going to happen. Look down at verse 12. He says, Therefore, because of you, Zion 
shall be plowed as a field. Remember, Zion was the name of a of a mountain, right? Mount Zion, a hill in Jerusalem. It will be plowed as a field. In other words, it's going to be. It's like the it's like the mountain, the the peak of the city is going to be wiped, made low. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So it's going to be flattened, and trees are going to grow in it, and it's just going to be it's just going to be woods in a forest. Okay, those are the warnings for these hypocritical leaders. That would be that would be again my my way of thinking of like man there is no hope at all this is almost like it's always winter and never Christmas yes ma'am um, was that an issue too? where it says Zion is a what. Oh, daughters of Zion. Okay, yeah. So Zion sometimes was used to describe the nation as a whole, or at least the city as a whole. So it wasn't. Sometimes Zion is referring like to the mountain specifically, but sometimes it's also the nickname just for the whole area around it. So yeah, daughters of Zion. In fact, um, that phrase is actually used in the next uh, chapter that we're going to look at. So that would just mean he's, he's referring then just to the daughters of the whole city of Jerusalem. Yeah, Zion uh, is also used to describe heaven sometimes. Um, so like a, the, what the New Testament would call the heavenly Jerusalem sometimes is also called Mount Zion. Yeah, good question. All right, those are the warnings. Look at the very beginning of verse 4. This is how it is now, but he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. So, he's going to now give, and this is where you can write in for the second point, promises for the latter days. How are things at the end going to be different than the way things are now in Micah's Day. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. And the first one, I think, is very interesting. Look at how he describes it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the... And what does he talk about? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as what? The highest of the mountains, and it shall be... Yeah, lifted up above the hills. So in back-to-back verses, if you just took the very last verse of chapter 3 and the very first verse of chapter 4, it's describing opposite things, isn't it? So there's a, there's a warning in, in chapter 3, verse 12. Zion will be a field. Jerusalem's a heap. The mountain is, is flattened like, like a forest. But then in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. So the first promise for the latter days is that the mountain shall be lifted up. Whereas the judgment is that it would be leveled, now it it will be reestablished. It will be built back up. And again, probably this is a way to describe the exaltation of God's people at the end of time. So, 
not just not just the mountain itself, but the actual people of God, the actual daughters of Zion, as Lily reminded us, are leveled in judgment, but are raised again because they belong to God. Now, uh, interestingly, at least I think it's interesting, uh, the first three verses here, so Micah 4, 1 to 3, are the exact, are basically exactly the same as Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. So if you want to make that note maybe and compare later and see just how similar they are, Micah 4, 1 to 3 are really the same as Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Uh, in fact, because Micah and Isaiah really lived and wrote about the same time, probably one of them stole this from the other, uh, but we're not sure like who would have written it first. It just, Or maybe it was, it was something that they collaborated on and like wrote together, and they're like, oh, that's good, I'm going to use it in my book. No, I'm going to use it in my book. Okay, we'll both use it. Something like that. But the promise is the same. And because the mountain will be lifted up, look at what this means for the people. Look at verse 4. They shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one will make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people's walk, all the people's walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So the second point there, the people will sit in peace and walk in the name of the Lord. When God lifts up His people at the end in the latter days, it will mean peace for His people. It will mean that they will walk in the name of the Lord. Look at the uh, beginning of verse 6. How does that begin? What's the phrase there? In, in that day. So again, you get the idea he's talking about in the future, right? Latter days. Uh, in that day. At, at the coming of the end of days. And look at, look at the promise there. Verse 6. In that day, I will assemble the lame... And gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. He will reign over them. Mount Zion will be the place from which he reigns. Now, there's a couple of, of pictures there. If the Lord's going to reign, then one, it's a promise that He will be what? He will be a, a king, right. He's going to reign. He's going to rule. He will be a king. And when it describes there that He's gathering those who've been driven away, this is something else we, we actually talked about last week, uh, the picture of going into all the nations where, the, where God's people had been exiled, and then gathering them back to himself, that's actually a picture of what kind of person? Do you remember? A shepherd. A shepherd. That's exactly right. He's gathering his people like a, like a shepherd would gather his sheep, and he's going to rule over them. So again, you have both of those 
pictures here. So the point is, and you can write this in your notes, that the Lord will gather those who are exiled and rule as king. He will gather them and rule as king. Uh, go down to verse 12 in chapter 4. Uh, let's actually start in verse 11. Verse 11. Micah says, Now many nations are assembled against you, many nations against Israel, saying, Let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. However, verse 12, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Um, this is probably both a way to describe the way that God would save Israel, He's gathering them, but also the way He's going to judge the nations who have held Israel captive. He, they're, like, uh, they're like sheaves to the threshing floor. In other words, they're going to be cut down and picked apart. So this would be like, if you, if you were to turn, go ahead and turn, um, like keep your finger in Micah. But turn to the very first, very early on in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verse 11. John the Baptist gives this prediction. So Matthew three eleven, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then here's the, here's the prediction, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So again, the picture, John is making this prediction about Jesus. He says Jesus has his winnowing fork in his hand. That would be the tool they would use to thresh the wheat. He gathers his wheat into the barns, into the barn, but whatever is not gathered with him is thrashed and thrown into the fire to be burned. So a picture both of rescuing his people but punishing those who don't belong to him. Same description there that Micah gives. Move ahead now to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. When would this come about or how would this come about? Micah 5 and verse 2. Micah here addresses a specific city. He says, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Apparently, Bethlehem was going to be significant. Apparently, from Bethlehem, this ruler of Israel was going to come, so that when the Lord would rule as king, he would come from where? From Bethlehem. Now, again, we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew, don't we? So if you look back at, at Matthew chapter 2, if you're still there, Herod is upset because these wise men come to Jerusalem. They're looking for someone who's going to be born to be king of the Jews. 
So ruler over God's people. And Herod doesn't know anything about this king or where he's going to be born, but they're looking for where he might be. So he summons his priests and scribes, and they actually go searching. Where's this king going to be born? And what's their answer? In Bethlehem. And, and how do they know it's going to be Bethlehem? What did the scribes and priests look up? This passage in Micah, right? They looked at the prophets and they said, For so it is written by the prophet, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, I think that's very interesting. and in, in, that's, that's Matthew's quote. A ruler who will shepherd my people. So again, two different descriptions there. What are they? A, a ruler, that would be a king, and a shepherd. A king and a shepherd. We'll go back to Micah chapter 5. In verse 2, he is called one who is to be a... Micah 5, 2. One who is to be ruler... In Israel, and then look at the very beginning of verse 4. And he shall stand and what? Yeah, shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And then the the very beginning of verse 5, he shall be their peace. So he will come from Bethlehem, and when he does, uh, the, the point there in your notes, there will be peace for the people of God. There will be peace for the people of God, but the, but the chapter ends with this reminder that there will be vengeance for those who do not obey God. There will be vengeance for those who do not obey God. Uh, look, at, look at the very last verse of chapter 5, verse 15. And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Did not obey. Now normally... We think of this prediction about Bethlehem at what time of year? At Christmas time, right? So again, I think this actually helps us to understand the connection here uh, between what C.S. Lewis is saying when he says, while the land is under the rule of the white witch, it is always winter and never Christmas. And yet, uh, Micah is saying, in a, in a sense, now he probably wouldn't have said it exactly this way, but it's, it's like Micah is saying, Christmas is coming. Right? Winter is ending, but Christmas is coming. Christ is coming. We're celebrating the birth of our shepherd king who is coming. And later on in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you get a hint of winter ending when what person shows up? Aslan. Aslan shows up, but even before Aslan shows up, somebody else does. Father Christmas, right? Uh, Santa Claus. And, and he says, um, he says to, um, oh, I got to find it here. Um, here's what here's what here's what Santa Claus says to the kids. He says, "I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. 
The witch's magic is weakening. And then he, then he gives all the gifts to the kids. And then when he leaves, uh, this is what he says. Then he cried out, Merry Christmas, long live the true king. And he cracked his whip, and he and the reindeer and the sledge and all were out of sight before anyone realized they had started. So his, his announcement, Merry Christmas, long live the true king, who for Narnia was Aslan. But I also think that that's maybe C.S. Lewis's way of saying, hey, there's, you know, right now it, it can kind of feel like, like our lives as believers, our lives as God's people, it's always winter and never Christmas. But we want to be comforted that Christmas is coming. There was a true king who really was born in Bethlehem who's going to shepherd his people and give us peace forever. And Micah says it's coming in the latter days. So we hold on to that promise that, that we will see that shepherd king one day. And when, he, and when he comes, then, guess what? It will be always Christmas and never winter. So that's something worth looking forward to. Yeah, but you don't get all the, but you don't get all the negative stuff that goes along with winter, right? Exactly. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the promises. Thank you that for those who really uh, do trust you and cling to your word and and seek uh, you and turn from sin, that you have promised that you will be our king, you will shepherd us, you will gather us, uh, and there will be peace for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, hints of that peace even in live in our lives now. But Lord, we very much anticipate the day when the one who will bring us peace will return fully and finally at the end and will gather us once again to himself to be his people forever. Not to be born in Bethlehem this time, but to come uh, and reign over all the nations Thank you that you'll lift up your people at the end uh, for our good and for your glory. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.